Hey, everybody. Uh, what you're about to hear is our very first live Christmas spectacular. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Josh is here, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is a lot of fun, man. We did a, a hometown live Christmas show at the Center Stage Theater in Atlanta. This was in real time. This is what, last uh, just a few days ago. It was, and it was a great show. We uh, brought the house down, I think is how they, they put it. Yeah, man, and it was cold and rainy and Atlanta United was playing in a championship game, and people still packed out the center stage, uh, and that really meant a lot to us. It was great. It was a Christmas miracle, frankly. Yeah, and uh, you're going to notice something different. We actually used visual cues in this episode for the first time, and we're going to post those on Facebook. So if you want to uh, see the the pictures that we're talking about uh, in our different segments, you can go to Facebook, check those out. And we also did a Christmas reading this year of a contemporary book which was kind of cool. We did a reading uh, from a wonderful, wonderful kid's book uh, called Meet the Latkes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it tells the actual real story of Hanukkah and how that came about in a very fun, childlike way. And it was written by a man named uh, Alan Silberberg. You can buy that uh, wherever you buy your books. It's really wonderful. Uh, Or you can go to silberbooks.com. That is S-I-B-E-R books.com. And check out what Alan's up to. Uh, and it's not just for Jewish families. Like, you should just spread the word of Hanukkah to to all children because it's a really great story. Yeah, it's a really great book, too. So thanks to Alan. And uh, here we go. Away we go. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. Jerry's even out there somewhere. And we are here live at Center Stage Theater in our hometown of Atlanta, Georgia. Woo! We love you, too. I just lost the only gift you've ever given me. <laughs> That's not true, by the way. Are you going to put it on? Well, I had it on. I was like, God, why am I hotter than usual? (laughs) All right. There it is. Fits perfectly. Yeah. I had the tailor made for it. (laughs) Nice. So um, (laughs) we wanted to give you guys some information because this is a podcast, right? Um, Yes, I'm redoing the horrible, clumsy segue that I did already before we started (laughs) recording. And we're going to talk to you about the history of aluminum trees. Does anybody have an aluminum tree in here? Okay, a few people over 80. Do you see that over there? There is an aluminum tree over here. And Chuck, where yeah. did you get that? Yeah, the story here is, is that this is, uh, now belongs to us and my family. Uh, this belonged to Emily's grandmother. She's still with us. <laughs> She's not here tonight because, as you all know, Mary is, how old is she now, 98? Yes. Oh, they're over there. <laughs> I was like, that's so weird that that person over there knows how old Mary is. <laughs> and she sounds just like my wife, who I've been looking at over here. Emily's. And that lady's like, Chuck's a total creep. Because <laughs> he's just looking at me. Emily's throwing her voice, is what it is. So she's 98 years old. She's still with us, which is amazing. Uh, but that was their tree. And as you can tell, if you're on this side of the stage, we will describe all these things in greater detail. But that is an original, I guess, from the 1950s or early 60s, aluminum tree complete with color wheel. Yep. Uh, if you're you over there, know. I'm sorry. Yeah. You can see it peeking above the bar. 
So it's an aluminum tree, as Chuck said. And the aluminum trees got their start through the great American uh, process of, of uh, intellectual property theft. That's right. There was a guy from a company called Aluminum Specialties, and he was walking down the street in Chicago one day, and he stopped. He saw a tree made out of aluminum, and he thought it was the most amazing thing ever. And then he looked at the price. He was like, 100 bucks. That seems a little steep. And it looks a little heavy. I'll bet I can do better than that. So we went back to headquarters, and he said, look, guys, yeah. I saw a tree made out of, wait for it, aluminum. But it was too heavy. It was too expensive. We can do better. And, and aluminum specialty said, giddy up. That's right. And by the way, I heard a bell jingling, and I was looking here, and I was looking there. It's my hat. Oh. And I was like, is there someone behind me? <laughs> With the bell. Sorry, everyone. The acid is kicking in. <laughs> Should be a good show. Uh, so I did a little, I know you're the, uh, you're the inflation calculator man, mm -hmm. but I did a little calculating. So those, those original trees from Chicago that he saw and decided to rip off in today's dollars were, uh, close to 900 bucks. What? Yeah. Wow. $885. And so Mr. Tom Gannon of Aluminum uh, Specialty, like you right. said, was like, they're getting ripped off. And if, I think if we can package these for 20 to 25 bucks and we can make them so that a lady with her little lady arms can pick them up. <laughs> That's literally, well, he didn't say that. This was said at a marketing strategy meeting, though. But it really was. They were like, well, we need to make them uh, all in in a box light enough for women to pick them up off the shelf. Because <laughs> <Right. laughs> it's 1957. But they, they did just that. Yep. Then they, they put them in a box, and on the box it said, aluminum for lasting beauty. Because, you know, your tree will rot and die. Just try to keep it around past February. It's going to go up in flames, right? Oh, we do. Plus, it was the safety tree, too, because it won't go up in flames no matter how long you keep it around. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. That thing looks highly flammable to me. <laughs> that one, yeah. It does. I'm not going to test it. I think it just kind of melts into a pool. Oh, okay. And then we die from the fumes is right. what we get. <laughs> so they set up shop. Uh, they already had a plant in Manitowoc, Wisconsin, right there on the shores, really. Right there, <laughs> represent. Yeesh. Right there on the shores of Lake Michigan. Uh, during World War II, they were building submarines. I guess out of aluminum, which I don't think is true at all. <laughs> Had to be something more durable than that, right? Well, the, I don't think aluminum specialties was making submarines. The town was known for. Oh, I told you I was unprepared. <laughs> so they started getting these out the door for twenty to twenty-five bucks. They had models that were four. Two, four, six, and seven feet high. Mm -hmm. uh, and initially, people made fun of them. They called them tin tannin bombs. Uh, people were mad when they saw them at first in 1959 because they thought it was gaudy and gross and not a real tree. Not some beautiful, what will one day be appreciated, uh, appreciated as like a kitschy, beautiful item. Well, plus also it was like, what do you mean an aluminum tree? We just want tree trees. What are you, a communist? What's I want a tree made out of tree? tree. Exactly. I'm trying to take my real tree. Don't say happy holidays to me. All right, there you go. That's so my prop. aluminum specialties cookies were saved by, believe it or not, tire sales people. So in, in Wisconsin, in the wintertime, they don't sell a lot of tires. And so tire stores said, well, we need to make some, some bread somehow. we got to get Christmas presents for our kids. How are we going to do this? And they heard about these aluminum trees, and they started setting them up in their showrooms. And, of course, 
the pride of every town is the, the tire store that everyone walks past yeah. constantly. But people started walking past the tire store, seeing the aluminum trees in there, and said, okay, they actually are quite beautiful. I want one. And they started <laughs> selling them like hotcakes. Here's an actual quote. I wish you could have found out who this person was. This was a, a, someone who worked at Aluminum uh, Tree Makers of America. He said, it was a salesman's dream to have this happen. Suddenly, the guy who wouldn't give you the time of day is your best friend. I think that was actually a tire store guy. Sure. Come on, give me more aluminum trees. I need them, man. I'm selling them too fast. So they sold something like, um, I think, 90000 in the first year. Is that correct, Chuck? Yeah, no, they sold over 100000 They sold 40000 in the first month. Gotcha. Which is crazy. So... Within, of course, weeks, because Aluminum Specialties stole it from this other company, other people started stealing Aluminum Specialties' idea. And it's the American way. They came out with this thing. Within weeks, other people were selling aluminum trees. And so everybody started having an aluminum tree. And some of them were uh, more expensive, some were less. But Aluminum Specialty played it smart. They went right down the middle, and they had like 65% of the market share. And even today, their Evergleam product was, is like the most sought yeah. after. It's like the, the Cadillac of aluminum trees, I guess. <laughs> that that's, that's a terrible analogy, but you get what I'm saying. I like it. Tires, Cadillacs, it's all coming around. Sure. So uh, some of these companies, because it's the 1950s, we thought we'd read some of these names of companies that ripped them off because it's just so 1950s. Uh, Morris Novelties. Holiday Industries, Regal Electronics. Hold on. Holiday Industry. Yeah. <laughs> That's my favorite. Uh, Astrolite LTD. Not bad. That's a British company. Uh, and Asbestos Farms. It's really sweet. <laughs> I made up that last one. This thing just, this, like my neck just itched when you said that. Right I'm word. getting uncomfortable just like every time I look over there, I want to take that off of you. Can I take this off, everybody? Yeah. You're going to literally cut. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> ba 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 a little something for you. A little something extra. And look, it's a nice moundy garland. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. All right, so they started to gussy up their trees a bit. Uh, one of these is gussied up because you see those little pom-poms on the end. Uh, that was an addition that they made to later trees uh, because I, I guess they just wanted to make them special. They made them in different colors. Mm -hmm. I think the pink ones these days are the most prized ones that you can buy on eBay. Yeah, one of them sold for like 3600 bucks once. Yeah, that's the appropriate What response. can I get for that one? <laughs> I don't know. Are you familiar with the term struggling? Yeah, sure. The tree is struggling. Oh. <laughs> There's a somewhere in... Snellville, there's a 98-year-old woman very angry at you. <laughs> so you struggling? She's not in Snellville. She's down at the, uh, the game, the football game. Oh, yeah. She's watching Atlanta United lose. Right. No. I don't want that to happen, everybody. I'm just from Atlanta. I'm preparing myself. You just turned the crowd on us. I know. All right. So these things are moving like hotcakes. They literally sell over a million of these. Uh, combined, and then of course, like every sort of Christmas fad that comes, it goes. And uh, some people lay the blame at the feet of none other than Charlie Brown. Yeah, isn't that weird? Like most people think that Charlie Brown did away with the aluminum Christmas tree because in the the Charlie Brown Christmas special, 
um, Lucy sends Charlie Brown and Linus out to go get a tree, the biggest aluminum tree you can find, preferably pink, right? And so they go off on this mission, and they find some. Linus taps on one, and it sounds like he's tapping on a ship's hole. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Charlie Brown's like, no, no, I'm not doing this. I'm going with this tree, this little weird crinkly tree, a struggling Christmas tree. Um, and Charlie Brown takes it home and loves it. And it was like the spirit of Christmas was found in this little tree. And the commercialization of Christmas was personified in the, in the aluminum trees. And some people say that's what kind of turned the tide. That's right. Other people say it was just coincidence uh, and it was bound to be a Christmas fad uh, no matter what. Charlie Brown just kind of helps push it over the cliff. As Charlie Brown is, <laughs> as he does. does. <laughs> He's got... A lot of blood on his hands. <laughs> uh, but also gradually over the years, they did come back thanks to things like eBay and Etsy uh, and people with uh, uh, extra money in their pockets that want to pay $3,000 for a vintage tree. People came, with no kids, back. I think, in other words. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but we still have ours, and it, and it still looks great despite what Josh says. Let's give it up for the tree. So All right, we made it through a segment. We made it through one tomorrow. <laughs> so uh, it wouldn't be Christmas, everybody, without a, a good Christmas miracle story or three. And we just so happen to have three of them for you. We had more, but we found out that a lot of them actually don't really uh, add up once you yeah. start digging into them. These are legitimate, bona fide, <laughs> the Pope has signed off on them Christmas miracles, okay? Hey, everybody. That's, that's what the Pope says. That's, hey, everybody. That's, uh, that was Irish. <laughs> Don't even know what's going okay. on. All right. Miracle number one. Then this one's going to knock your socks off. Uh, this was in 1931. We're going back in the Wayback Machine oh, even yeah, let's further in time. That's, that's, that's what powers the Wayback Machine. That's right. <laughs> too far you dummies we're in like 1852 dinosaurs can you guys say whoops in like reverse (laughs) that works it's working all right all right wow i've never felt this powerful before in my (laughs) life all right so 1931 uh there's a couple named ed and julia stewart and they were making their way across arizona on a christmas eve going home and they stopped to change a tire because it got a flat out in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. near a town called Superior, Arizona. By the way, I looked up the population. Yes. Because you kept saying, you know, it's in the middle of nowhere. And I was like, yeah, we'll see about that. Okay. Their population in 1930 was uh, about 4,500 people. And now it's about 2,800 people. Yeah. That's a steep decline percentage. Yeah, that's, they're not going in the right direction. But even still, in 1931, 4,500 people, it's not that many. Plus, Arizona's not even a state yet. Yeah. It's just basically a bunch of people camping out together in the desert, <laughs> is what Superior Arizona was. And this couple, um, their names were Ed and Julia Stewart. Uh, they were about 10 miles west of Superior when their car got a flat yeah. on Christmas Eve. <laughs> oh, just wait. <laughs> So, Just remember, it's Christmas Eve when this happens. <laughs> so they, they pull over. Uh, Ed's fixing the car. And his wife is like, well, i got to go use the restroom, I guess, out here behind a cactus. 
because there's no one around. And oh my gosh, there's a hat box laying in the sand and it's crying. Yes. <laughs> it was a baby in a hat box. I know everyone, but this is a Christmas miracle story. Yeah, so, just, just so don't get too worried. Keep hope. <laughs> there's a little girl in there and she's like, well, this is weird. There's a little baby in a hat box. I almost peed on it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank God it cried. Uh, and so I think we should do the right thing and not leave this baby in the middle of the desert. I'm, I'm hoping that it wasn't even a thought. <laughs> I'm hoping she didn't even have that thought. They flipped a coin and decided <laughs> to take a little hat box baby. They went Anton Chigger on, on the thing. They're like, hey, baby, call it heads or tails. Everyone's seen No Country for Old Men? Yeah. <laughs> that was what that was referencing. So uh, they pick up Hatbox Baby. They take Hatbox Baby to a hospital. You're laughing, but that's what they call this baby in the news. Hat the Hatbox baby. baby. Seriously. Should have called it Baby Christmas Eve. Sure. Or just Baby Eve. That's a real name. Uh, yeah, sure. You know? Yeah, yeah. No one names your kid Hatbox. No, Hatbox Baby. <laughs> I'm sure somebody sang like a barbershop quartet song too. It was 1931. Yeah, that's true. You're my half box, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so 17 couples uh, ended up that wanted a little baby born in a hat box. <laughs> and they all applied to adopt a little hat box baby. 17 couples. Yep. Uh, and this is the part I don't get. How many showed up? Two. <laughs> Why? What happened in between then and... Uh, this they were just like, says, yeah, that was yesterday. Right. I was sort of excited. I think Hatbox Baby fell out of the news a little bit. You know what uh, I'm saying? And so two really had what they call stick to Even back then, huh? And of those two couples, a judge had to be like, mm, you guys, thanks for coming. There's some other baby not from a hat box that they also found in the desert. <laughs> they're like, no not interested. You're right, exactly. <laughs> I don't want cactus baby. Right. <laughs> Raised by coyotes. So in the end, uh, they did find one couple, and they named the baby Sharon, my mother-in-law's name. All right. Named him after my future mother-in-law. Uh, little Sharon Elliott never met her biological parents uh, because this was the 1930s when you uh, buried the stuff deep under the sand and lived a lie your entire life. Not only that, she didn't know she was the Hatbox baby until 1989. Seriously? Yes. She knew of the Hatbox Baby, don't we all? But she didn't know she was the Hatbox Baby. Did she find out by opening a Hatbox and having this weird psychic flashback? <laughs> right, yeah. She's like, gotta get out, gotta get out. <laughs> There's coyotes after me. Coyotes. Is that the end of this story? Oh, no. The end is, she did not meet her parents, which is very sad. But uh, for the 1930s, she went on to have a career in the aerospace industry, which was uncommon for a woman at the time. So she did really well for herself and lived a long and fruitful life. And she's here tonight, everybody. Give it up. Hatbox baby. She's going to fly in on a... That's how you end a story. That was miracle one. So we have another one for you. Two of three starting now. All right. We, we actually had five and we had to cancel two miracles. Yeah, I told them. One, because it wasn't that interesting. And I'm just going to briefly say... I you don't probably know. Don't want to. I don't know. 
There was this one story about a lady who got lost and buried in the snow for three days but lived, and they found her, and I was like, this is amazing. I did some more research, uh, and apparently it was a suicide attempt. And she lost her arms and legs and then sued the hospital. And I was like, I think we should not do this one. There's no miracle here. What's the exact opposite of a miracle? Yeah. It's really bad. Of a Christmas miracle. I can't believe you told them that. Actually, I'm proud of you for doing that. Stuff you should know way. All right, so where are we going? Are we going to uh, Korea? We are. We're going to Korea during the right. uh, the onset of the Korean War, and the communist uh, the communists were coming down from China into the North Korean into the Korean Peninsula. Sorry, and they were pushing the North Koreans further and further south. Uh, and a bunch of North Korean people had uh, assembled at the docks at Hungnam, and in Hungnam there were a lot of people hanging out. Something like 100,000 civilians plus a ton of Allied troops being evacuated. There were ships coming and going and coming and going and getting people out. But they were mostly getting the soldiers out. And there were a lot of civilians standing there stranded. But luckily for those civilians, there was a captain with one of the greatest names ever, Leonard LaRue. And Leonard LaRue said, oh, you're going to die at the hands of the communists who are coming down? Not on Leonard LaRue's watch. And he just happened to captain a ship called the SS Meredith Victory. And the SS Meredith Victory was a large cargo ship, but it was in no way, shape, or form a passenger ship. That's right. And it was actually, weirdly, named after Meredith College in North Carolina, where my niece went to school. It's all full circle. Somehow, this Christmas miracle from Korea in 1950 has to do with Chuck. That's right, everybody. <laughs> I like to feel like I had a hand in it. <laughs> so they, they pull up this SS Meredith Victory, and here's where I got confused, and Josh was kind enough to clear it up, because in this research it said that it was only designed to hold 60 people. Why don't you lower the boom on how many civilians they ended up fitting on this? Leonard thing? LaRue in one shot fit 14,000 people. <laughs> This was a shoddy article. Yeah, so I saw that, and I was like, we're going to have to erase this one, because that's obviously a lie. You can't fit 14,000 people on a 60-person ship. Uh, but that was like 60 beds in the like crew area. It was a large cargo ship. Uh, wasn't large for 14,000 people. No. They literally stuffed them in there like sardines. They were all standing like elbow to elbow. No one could sit. No one could move. On deck, below deck. There was no water. No, no water. food. No heat, no toilets. Yeah, think about that. And 14,000 civilians from Korea. Think about that. (laughs) Yeah. 14,000 civilians from Korea were packed elbow to elbow in the ship, navigating mine-infested waters uh, for two days at sea. Yeah, I saw a quote from one of the... um one of the, the dudes that worked on the ship. What do you call those people? Dudes that work on ships? Uh, ship dudes. Yeah. One of the crew members. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Years later recounted, and he was like, you know, the Korean people are um, somewhat stoic in their nature, he said. But I couldn't believe, even with that, the way they behaved. And no one, he said it was so orderly. No one fought. No one, like, jostled. Everyone just, like, sort of worked together to make this Christmas miracle happen. So, so okay. There are two miracles that came out of this. So they make land at Geoje Island on Christmas Day. That's right. And um, two miracles happened. One, over this two-day period, under these very treacherous conditions, not one person died. 
Not one person was injured. Miracle one. Yeah, you can clap for that. Sure. Sure. Yes. Wait, hold on. Please clap. That was, I got political again. I'm sorry, yeah, that's everybody. Right. That was miracle one. What was miracle two? Miracle number two is they showed up with 14,005 people. Because guess what? Five little BBs were born, everyone. In this little journey, there was a medic on board that worked with the crew. I found out that didn't have any training, of course, uh, delivering babies. Just running around with a hat box, like just drop it in here, (laughs) drop it in here. The hat box is getting kind of gross after number two, but they lived with it. Oh. (laughs) Jerry, cut this part out in the future, okay? Seriously, make a note. Um... Yeah, five little babies were born. Everyone lived. Those little five babies are all right. And they're here tonight, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> One of these times is going to come true. Oh, man, wouldn't that be great? That was miracle two. Miracle three is as follows, starting now. We should have done these in a different order now that I'm seeing what miracle this is. Does anyone out there like dogs? <laughs> Same here. What about... Miracle dogs. <laughs> Momo, yeah. all right, yes. That's yeah. right, sure. Sorry. Oh, that's a Simpsons reference. <laughs> I know. I oh, okay. You told he, me never to acknowledge people from the stage. Well, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, this is a special show. I'm right. sorry, buddy. <laughs> I was just doing as told, sir. <laughs> All right, so April 2006, Aurora, Colorado, a woman named Vonda Lundstrom had a heartbreak when her little pet rat terrier, Daisy, uh, got out from her fence and didn't come home ever. Which is, first of all... It's a miracle story, everyone. A rat and a terrier. It's disgusting. It must have been like the ugliest dog on the planet. That's that's not how that works. Uh. Well, explain it to me later. Let's keep things going. Like a German bulldog doesn't mean a German man and a bulldog. (laughs) Actually, well, no. Not so sure what happens behind closed doors. So Daisy, the rat terrier, (laughs) ran off. And Vonda Lundstrom said, um, well, I guess that's it for for me and being happy. So long, Daisy. I think she spent months looking, to be fair. And then just kind of gave up, resigned herself that she would never see her dog again. Never knew what happened to her and just was like, well, my heart is broken. On Christmas Day of that year, she gets a call. And this call is from a woman in Knoxville, Tennessee, saying, hey, guess what? Oh, yeah, got some Knoxville people here, huh? Well, you prepare to be proud of your town. (laughs) Because a woman from your town found Daisy in Knoxville, Tennessee. She had made it 1,300 miles from Aurora, Colorado to Knoxville, Tennessee. No one has any idea how and showed up on this woman in Knoxville, Tennessee's doorstep. Yeah, and she said, where are you from, little dog? And she went, Colorado. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty good. It's so dumb. <laughs> I can't believe I did that in front of 850 people. No. She did what you should do, which is call the little number on the tag, uh, got in touch. It was a rabies tag, so got in touch with a veterinarian in Colorado. She said, I think I have the wrong number. I don't, this is a weird area code to be calling for a lost dog in my neighborhood in Knoxville. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, it is weird. It's in Colorado. And he, she said, I got a little rat terrier named Daisy. And the vet went, 
What? A rat terrier? What are you talking about? <laughs> I don't know how you do it in Tennessee, lady, but... Uh, <laughs> right. Here in Colorado, we breed dogs with dogs. <laughs> oh, that's not how we do it in Tennessee. <laughs> so, uh, he said, I think that we have a match here. There, uh, this is one of my, my, uh, my clients, and he called up Vonda, and he said, believe it or not, we think we found Daisy... This was this dog was missing in April, and this was Christmas. Christmas. So some you do the math. Yeah, had it not been Christmas, it would have just been a miracle, not a Christmas miracle. That's right. Right. <laughs> so they were reunited, and um, I guess if we've already told the other story about the other Christmas miracle, we can kind of pull the rug out on this one too. <laughs> uh, Daisy was reunited with Vonda, and Daisy got home to find out that Vonda had replaced Daisy, and she had to share her house. With uh, another dog. Yeah. That must have been pretty awkward for Daisy. It's like finally back home and runs inside and is like, oh. Oh. This is my spot. (laughs) You haven't been here for a while, so let me tell you what the rules are, Daisy. Yeah, and the dog's like, no, I all over that. (laughs) And I'm about to again. Is that our last miracle? That was it. That's what I'm saying. We did them out of order. All right. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> we can tell you guys are the hardcore stuff you should know, fans, because you clapped for that one. <laughs> so I don't know if you guys have noticed the theme or not yet, but we're talking a lot about Christmas. I've noticed you shifting it. What is, the, is there a rhyme or reason there? Nervous habit. Okay. I thought you were just that like... Was, no, that was the first time I've shifted All right, it. next segment. <laughs> right. Wait, no. We just graduated to from the right. that one on to the next. You don't want that side to get cheated. Show them your ball. Right. Here you go, everybody. Get a look at a load. Shouldn't be hearing things. So we're, uh, we're talking Christmas. And what would Christmas be without shoving elbows to the teeth? Maybe a, like a, a little bit of choking. They're like, oh, wait, I can go to jail for that over the must-have toy of the season. And we found out that there, were not, there was a, a toy that spanned not one, but two Christmas seasons. And that toy spanned the Christmases of 1986 and 1987. And his name was Teddy Ruxpin. Yeah, let's go ahead and... Uh... Remember that little guy? How adorable. Comes with a cassette and a storybook. Yeah, And you can buy more cassettes and more storybooks and more cassettes and more storybooks. Because that's how they get you. Right. That's how they got you with Teddy Ruxpin. And he was super groundbreaking at the time, right? Um, Teddy Ruxpin, if you don't know what Teddy Ruxpin is, he's this guy. But your kid would put a cassette in his back and press play (laughs) with, like, sticky little chocolatey fingers. And um, Teddy Ruxpin. Hold on. There we go. There you go. We don't want to give away the horror that awaits. <laughs> right. And Teddy Ruxman would come to life and be like, hey, you're my friend, whether you like it or not, kid. And <laughs> like his eyes would open and close and his nose would spin and he'd start talking. But he would talk, not just, you know, babble or just talk about his day or something like that. He would talk and he would tell a story, right? I was born in a hat box. <laughs> right. Yeah. 
<laughs> Here's an amazing bear that told your kids stories, and every kid wanted one. But there was actually a pretty great story leading up to it. And it was a Disney Imagineer named Ken Forsey, who was the guy who came up with Teddy Ruxpin. And he worked on him for so long that his original idea was for Teddy Ruxpin to have been a monkey because he wanted to salute the space program. That's how long the guy had been working on Teddy yeah. Ruxpin. <laughs> So uh, I did a little more research into this guy. Like you said, he worked at Disney. What do, what do they call themselves? Imagineers. Oh, wait, I'm sorry. Oh, Imagineers. <laughs> uh, he actually helped design. He was one of the designers on the Haunted Mansion. Mm-hmm. So big ups for that. Best ride ever. Uh, and then <laughs> if you were a long time Atlantan, you might remember over at where Phillips Arena now is, is was the old Omni CNN, mm-hmm. and they had the world of Sid and Marty Croft, which is this weird LSD-fueled amusement park, mm-hmm. indoor amusement park, and he helped design that too, which is kind of cool. Yeah. So, uh, like we said, he worked at Disney, and he was like, I've, I've been to the Hall of Presidents. Why don't I just take Abraham Lincoln and wrap him in fur, cut his head off, wrap him in fur, sure. and I think I have a million seller. Right. But he worked on it for a while, and the reason it took him so long is because originally Teddy Ruxpin came in two parts. You had Teddy Ruxpin, and then you had a box, a big, clunky, ugly box with sharp edges and would, like, catch fire. And this box sent FM signals to Teddy, and then that's how Teddy, with the receiver in his face, would talk and, and move his, his mouth. Literal and radio stuff. signals. Right. He could so, not have been more complicated if he tried. Right. So, but also really clumsy and cumbersome. A two-piece set. No kid wants to like set up a receiver and like through like twist the dials, you know. Or no, they want like the hard, sharp box inside the bear. Right. But it wasn't really. It was a huge move when they managed to combine the two together. And what they figured out was that they could use one track and a regular cassette tape to record the story, Teddy's voice, and then the other track they recorded ultra high frequency radio signals that that told Teddy how to move his face. Yeah, it was, it was connected to a little motor. You know, cassettes record in stereo, so there's two sides. Yeah. And they just used one to send a signal to a little uh, motor control, and all of a sudden he could come to life and haunt your dreams. Right. <laughs> and with that, he took off. 1985, they released him in September, and they were sold out within a month. I think 43,000 units just Overnight. Yeah, but this guy was thinking big, though. Like, he was like, this is not a teddy bear, everyone. He created this whole backstory, and he wanted television shows and movies and things to accompany this. And it actually worked. He he went into the office and said, oh, he's not a bear. He's an iliop, which is a species native to the fantasy world of Grundo. And the people he was selling it to Seriously. was like, can he, can he just be a bear? Yeah. I don't want to think <laughs> about this today. Like he got a bear that talks. Like, that. You, that's seriously all you Good need, enough. dude. He's like, no, no. First of all, he's wearing a tunic. Bears don't wear tunics. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> he's an Iliop. So it was a pretty big breakthrough. And, and uh, Teddy Ruxpin started to take off. 43,000 units in the first month. Yeah. They sold a million within like the first three or four months. It was like a hit. So much so that it spanned 1986 and 1987's Christmases. Yeah, and so much so that he did get two specials out of ABC. Believe it or not, he, he tried HBO, and they're like, mm, that's weird. We're HBO. <laughs> right. But ABC was like, sure, why not? <laughs> so in uh, November and December of 1985, they had two live-action Teddy Ruxpin specials about this uh, cute little Iliop. From Grundo. From Grundo. <laughs> uh, and it came back over the years. I mean, here's the deal. Parents hated this thing. 
because he because he, I mean it was like seventy five bucks back then, which is like a million dollars today. A million dollars, <laughs> and these cassettes because the kids are like, well, I've heard that one. I want to hear the next one, and they were twelve ninety five a pop to get the little book and the cassette. And he was like, oh, I can write stories all day long. Yeah, children. Yeah, in the middle of these stories, you'd be like, hey, kid, go tell your parents to go get another cassette. <laughs> Tell them, tell them this, just say what I'm about to say. You will hold your breath until you pass out unless you get another cassette today. Okay? All right, okay. So anyway, in Grundo, it's always lovely out. That's how he would talk. Like, there was something wrong with him. I found a few of these titles, too, by the way. Oh, there you was, did? Yeah, there was one called The, the Mush. The, they all had colons, too. One was called the mush the mushroom forest. You can be anything you want to be. It's like a Gladwell. Wonder what was going on there. Oh yeah. There was one in the early '90s, and this is not a joke, everyone. Grunge music colon tap your feet to the beat. You lie. I'm serious. You lie. Because grunge, the most toe tappingest genre. Wow. Of music out there. Right. And then finally... But also, that's a Teddy Ruxpin title? <laughs> what, did, what did he tell the story of? I don't know. A bunch of uh, stage diving iliops. I guess so. <laughs> and then finally, you know, and Teddy Ruxpin came back a few times over the years. In fact, I think you can still buy them. Like, just a few years ago, there was another company that was like, sure, we'll buy the license. We'll take a crack at it. <laughs> uh, there was one, finally, where he jumped the shark that was called this. This is the title. Teddy Ruxpin visits the dentist, colon, sponsored by Crest. <laughs> it wasn't implied. That was the title. Right. Anyway, we have to take a message break, everybody. I'm kidding. I was making a joke about the Crest thing. Settle down. Yeah. I do have my Christmas Somebody me undies no. on, though. I do. I wear my Christmas light me undies. <laughs> it's authentic, everyone. So... Teddy Ruxpin, he went away. The market got saturated. There was something called uh, Rappin' Rabbit. There was one called Blabbering Bear, which is just a terrible name. They did zero market research. That's how fast everybody was getting this stuff. That's the one market. I would have gotten, like the, the Sears version. Blabber, oh, yeah. <laughs> Blabber Bear. Not by your own choice. No. Oh, same that. here, buddy. Yeah. I know what you mean. <laughs> Knights of the Round Table. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it looks just like Polo, except for the little flag. Yeah. <laughs> like the kids at school are not going to buy this. <laughs> Is that the end of that segment? That's the end of that. It's going great. It's going not bad. <laughs> so, again, we're talking Christmas. And what would Christmas be without the most horrific assemblage of monsters that you've ever encountered in your entire life? Well, if you're scared by this kind of thing, if you don't like monsters or they make you uneasy, thank your lucky stars that you were not raised in Europe. Because Europe has the scariest Christmas traditions of all time, ever. And we're going to tell you about some of them. Yeah, we've, we've talked about this in past Christmas specials, how Christmas was um, basically co-opted by Christians uh, from weird pagan holidays with horrific beasts. Mm -hmm. They're like, yeah, hey, let's turn that into uh, the birth of Jesus and Christmas. This is wonderful. Right. right. What about this angry forest goddess? Three wise men. <laughs> it's fine. They're going to be happy to get presents. It's fine. So we're going to start. Uh, you can go ahead and move the slide. Yes. 
We're going to start in Iceland, everyone, with the Yule Cat. You have to say it. You have to say it the, in the Icelandic, Chuck. That friendly guy. Yes, in Icelandic, it is uh, Jolak Kuturin. I'm sorry, everybody. Say it like Bjork, please. Oh. Jolak Kuturin? Yeah. <laughs> hey, that wasn't bad. <laughs> that was my best Bjork. It was a good Bjork, dude. It's oh so quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and the face and the movement, it no, really sells it. You got to do that. She actually records these songs, right? Yeah, there's that's you can not go, a joke. You can go onto YouTube and uh, look up Yolak Kutinen and just just guess how it's spelled. Yeah. And uh, or Icelandic Yule Cat. And there's a poem that Bjork has sung that they put to music, and it's weird and creepy and perfect. But there's this there's this uh, this tradition in Iceland that if you are a good kid and you do all of your chores and your work and your parents are hardworking too then you as a kid will be rewarded with a new piece of clothing on Christmas, right? That's what you're looking forward to as a kid in Iceland. Socks. Like it socks. And you're happy to have it because if you don't have new socks or new shoes or something, the Yule Cat will come along and eat you on Christmas Eve. Will eat you in your house in front of your family. You see that kid? He knows. He's like, there's totally a cat behind me right now, isn't there? <laughs> and his friends are going, nope. Yeah. Wearing their new jackets. Right, yeah. Members only. We're all good. So the whole thing is the Yule Cat just goes from house to house. And I think Christmas Eve or Christmas, one of the two, I think if you're being eaten by the Yule Cat, it doesn't matter. Sure. It's one extra day. The Yule Cat's looking into the windows like you, oh, new shoes. Okay, you're off limits. Oh, new apron. I guess that's an article (laughs) of clothing. It's just going from house to house. And then the Yule Cat will inevitably find some kid who was lazy and didn't do their chores. So they didn't get a a a new piece of clothing. Yeah. Pounce, tear, rip, meow, right? <laughs> Yule cat gets it done. But there's something really sad about this, too. What if, what if you're like a good kid and you do all your chores, but your parents are not well off? Well, TS for you, the Yule cat's gonna get you anyway, because the Yule cat doesn't discriminate. The Yule cat just goes by whether you have That's new right. clothing or not. He hates all children. Right. So, what's very sweet is if you read this Yule Cat poem, in the end it says, hopefully this will have you give a thought, children, to kids who are less fortunate than you, so you can make sure that they have a new piece of clothing around the holidays, so they won't get eaten by the Yule Cat. Right, and if not, the blood is on your hands. Right. <laughs> Meow. Meow. Yolak Kuturin. What I love about all these is, it was, when you look at the progression, Christmas softened to the point now where it's like, oh, you get coal in your stocking. And back then it was like, a cat will come and eat you. Eat you <laughs> in front of your family. Because it's all like, like, good kid, bad kid. What are you going to get? You're going to get a present or coal? And back yeah. then it was like, will you live or will you die? <laughs> <laughs> it's really amazing. <laughs> all right, for this next one, we are going to uh, Germany, the, the home of many horrors. A lot. Germany and Austria, which featured... This kind woman, and I guess her band of her soul eaters. Yeah, clearly. This so, is uh, Frau Perkta. Frau Perkta was a uh, a witch who would, you know, if she thought you were pretty good, give you some candy. If she thought you were bad, she would cut your you open and tear out your guts and stuff you with garbage. Yes. That's what they taught kids. 
Better not be bad or your guts are going to get pulled out and, and replaced with garbage by Frau Perkta. Yeah, she would visit over the 12 days of Christmas because she had a lot of work to do. I saw one descriptor that uh, she was often described as having one abnormally large foot called a goose foot. Oh, I, don't, I haven't heard that one. I don't know. It's a good one. I thought it was called drop foot. I don't, I don't even know what that is. You got the, you got the goose foot? <laughs> <laughs> so, did and you have a mishap at the Manny Petty place? So uh, the other thing it said, too, that she would slit their bellies open and stuff it with straw and pebbles. I like, so, I like garbage more. I like garbage, too. Because it also makes you think, like, what kind of garbage? Like coffee grounds and banana peels or something? Or more like... I don't think she's composting. All <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. But, I mean, that's, that's garbage. Because remember, you have to turn the kit every two days. <laughs> right. Exactly. Keep it on the sun so it gets nice and steamy. Maybe put some worms in there, too. Well, she was a forest goddess, so it sure. would make sense. Look at her. So Frau Perkta, not who you wanted to run into if you were a bad kid. All righty. Who's if, next? Germany again? Yeah. Of if, course. If you were in Germany, uh, or nowadays if you're in Pennsylvania Dutch country, mm-hmm. which is in Pennsylvania, uh, you might run into a little guy named Belstickel. Let's bring up Belstickel. <laughs> Guys. Like, that kid is not joking around in that photo. <laughs> this is supposed to be fun. Holiday fun in Germany. <laughs> I know it looks like a, a hostage situation. It does. At like an Olympic Games. Like, can you imagine if that guy came in through your door and was like, no, not your parents. I'm here to see you. Come here. Wow. So the thing about Belschnickel was this. Belschnickel was like, his name means either, uh, like, uh, what is it? Belzen means to wallop in, in German. Yeah. Uh, so he either means like walloping Saint Nick or Saint Nick in pelts and furs. And if you, um, if you ran across Belschnickel, he's like this old kind of woodsy guy who would show up a couple of days before Christmas to find out whether you were naughty or nice. And he would find out like this. He'd take some candy, maybe a few nuts, because again, you're like a Pennsylvania Dutch kid, so like you'll go crazy for a few walnuts even. And he would <laughs> throw them onto the ground, and he'd just watch you, like, what are you going to do? And the kid who uh, went after it, like Augustus Gloop or something like that, just jumped onto the ground after the candy, whap, he'd get a switch right to his back like two days before Christmas as part of the Christmas tradition. And that's what Belsnickel was doing. He was there to, to sort the naughty kids from the nice, but he's not nearly as bad as like Frau Perkter or anything like that because he would he would take time with the naughty kids sure. and kind of teach them like, no, don't That's what's jump going on the right ground. there. I think, I think so. This kid's about to be uh, indoctrinated into the Belsnickel <laughs> way of doing things. <laughs> he just showed himself to him. Let he us just show you on the, the Belschnickel way. Right. Uh, but he would spend time with the kids who were bad to basically say, this is how you do it. Here's <laughs> some candy. And he was meant to be a warning before St. Nick came to say, you can still be good right. before Christmas. I think that's a great warning. <laughs> uh, let's go to the next slide. That's another picture of him, just in case you needed some more nightmare fuel. <laughs> and then let's go one more. Yes. If, uh, if that sounded familiar to anyone, there was an episode of The Office. Everyone knows Dwight Schrute is from Pennsylvania Dutch country. Yeah. And so he brought the uh, legend of Belschnickel to The Office in an episode. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. 
so moving along, we're going to go on over to the Lorraine, Alsace yeah, and Lorraine uh, regions of France. Oh, actually, this has nothing to do with uh, any of these except that this was a Christmas photo from Germany. <laughs> the home of Belschnickel. All right, let's get away from that. All right, here we go. So Hans Trapp. That's Hans Trapp coming in the window there. Oh, it is okay. So this is nothing. The next slide will really kind of give you the feeling of what Hans Trapp's all about. Hans Trapp is a man who is a rich, wealthy man who decided that he wanted to eat children. He was that rich and wealthy, and so he was just going to do it. So he waited for a kid one day and pounced on him and took him and cooked him, got this far, and was about to eat him, and then God intervened and struck him down with lightning before he could actually eat the kid. Now, but wasn't this a true story? Yes, it was a true story. <laughs> no, but there was really a guy named Hans Trapp, though, right? They, I mean, according to legend. There was a cannibal Satanist. Right. And Christmas enthusiast. Right, who was struck down <laughs> by lightning by God. Right. Okay. Okay. So Hans Trapp um, was resurrected as a scarecrow man who will come through. Yeah, let's go through the next one. In the, uh, like, around Christmas time to make sure right. that kids are behaving so that they, they are not eaten by him. That's the... Yet another threat. Christmas in Germany, everyone, right behind me. Well, this is France, actually. Oh, all right. I back off Germany for a minute then. Right. I thought that was Germany, no? Hans Trapp's my least favorite Christmas figure. We're going to stay in France, everyone, with the last one. Let's switch that slide. Not bad, comparatively, right? Like, I'll take this guy any day over the rest of them. (laughs) This is, uh, how do you pronounce that? You're the, you're the Frenchie here among us. Père Fouettard. <laughs> that last, that really finishes it off nicely. Uh, this is the French legend. Uh, the name translates to Father Whipper. And there was an, uh, another evil butcher who craved children to eat. This is a constant theme in Europe around Christmas. And if you listen to our uh, Grimm's Fairy Tales or the Grimm's Brothers. It's a constant theme in children's literature that if you did not behave, you would be eaten by an adult. Right. Very sweet. So he craved children to eat, and he and his wife would lure three boys into the butcher shop where, where they would kill, uh, chop up, and salt these children uh, until St. Nicholas comes to the rescue, resurrecting the boys uh, and taking custody of the butcher. I love that. He takes custody. He said, you're with me now. You work for me. I'm St. Nick. Yeah, and he literally put him to work. He was not like, you go to the authorities. He was like, come on back to the North Pole. I right, think I exactly. got something for you. But it wasn't like, come on back to the North Pole. I, I want you to start painting checkerboards for the little boys and girls. It was, no, I like, what, I like the cut of your jib. Yeah. I want you to come do that for me. <laughs> so he would send him out ahead of time to basically nickel all the little kids. <laughs> And it's like, then, you heard of Belschnickel? Just then, do that. Then St. Nick would come in and be like, oh, hey, at least I'm not Père Fouettard, right? You know, I'm St. Nick. <laughs> Good cop, bad cop. Pretty, basically, exactly like yeah. that. Except the bad cop had no choice in the matter because he was in the custody of St. Nick. That's right. And that's France. <laughs> Who needs a drink? <laughs> Us too. All right. We just so happen to have a bar over here. So we're going to go to it now. All right, everybody, we're moving to the bar set. Yes. Hold on. Oh, thank you. Chuck's going to get my thing. I'm going to, uh, we're going to talk about hot toddies. Is anybody a hot toddy fan? Thank you, Chuck. 
Well, we're hot toddy fans too. But Chuck, haven't you like not had one before, or you haven't had one for a while? What's I the feel deal? like uh, I feel like Emily's made me a hot toddy when I was sick because uh, alcoholics like to tell each other <laughs> that it's good for a cold <laughs> when it's really just like I'm sick, but I really still like to drink. Right? And they're like, oh, well, this is great for that. Just put some lemon and honey in it, and you're all set. Oh, sure. It so makes- Josh is the bartender. Why don't you walk us through? Uh, well, first of all, we should talk a little bit about uh, where the hot toddy might have come from. So they, d- they actually don't know. Um, they think possibly it came from Scotland, Edinburgh. And in Edinburgh, there was a well. A Wait, general... you didn't say that right. It's Edinburgh. Right. There was a well that everybody drew water from. And water is like a big feature of the hot toddy. And the well was called Todd's Well, T-O-D's Well. And they think, well, hey, there you go. That's story one. Maybe. Eh. There's another one. In India, they drink a medicinal drink called the toddy. Yeah, T-A-R-I, the right. toddy. And it's made from tree sap. Eh. Nah. There's another one. There was a guy named Robert... Bentley Todd. Bentley Todd. <laughs> he was a doctor, and he would prescribe this stuff constantly. Whether you were sick or not, he'd be like, just drink this. And they think maybe he was the inventor of the toddy. No, I like that one. You like that one? Yeah. The fourth one that I came across was that it was invented to make scotch more palatable to women. And I think that's probably where the hot toddy came up. So they could sell more scotch, basically. And then they came up with these backstories for it. That's right. So you're brewing up some water. Uh, I am. What do we have here tonight? Got a little uh, local rye, it looks like. Resurgence rye whiskey, everybody. So... If you don't know how to make a toddy, it's super easy, and it's really actually quite good. Oh, great. This show just took a a turn to the left. But a toddy is just whiskey of some sort, usually. It can be scotch, it can be Irish, it can be uh, bourbon. We're doing bourbon or rye or something like that. Um, A little sweetener, usually honey, some citrus, and then some hot water. That's it. That's it. Right, uh, but depending on where you are in the country, uh, there are variations, of course, when you get uh, geographically specific. Uh, in New England, you might have one made with clam juice. <laughs> Just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> now, they actually use uh, maple syrup instead of honey in New England. Uh, where else? In Ireland, they use potato water. No? Just a joke? Like, we really have gotten into dad joke territory in the last couple of years. Some people have pointed it out, and I'm like, by God, they're right. That is pretty lazy. I'm like, Ireland, potatoes, right? Right. Uh, Irish whiskey there. In Scotland, they use Ewan McGregor's sweat. <laughs> well, that's, that's just heavenly. Kidding. They use scotch. And then uh, William Faulkner actually had a recipe that used bourbon. Uh, I don't have a William Faulkner joke. It's a very serious man. So tell us what we're doing here, Josh. What do we got? So I just put, I put about uh, an ounce and a half, two ounces. This this um, jigger doesn't actually say how big it is. But you want to put one to two ounces in, a couple of tablespoons of honey, a bunch of lemon, because, you know, that's what makes it, the honey and the lemon makes it medicinal, right? <laughs> that's right, said the alcoholic. I'm going to put a... <laughs> I was talking about me, by okay, the way, not thanks. you. All right. I was like, just go with it. He doesn't know what's coming. <laughs> I'm going to put a little less than a whole lemon in between the two mm. of them. 
And then the so coup de grace, which I found out means death blow, not the final touch. Did you guys know that? <laughs> I've been saying coup de grace my whole life, thinking like, oh, it's the final touch. No, it means to cut off the head. A little bit of water. All right. I will say this, though. Uh, jokes about alcoholism aside. <laughs> Here's another one. There are. No, there are doctors, like Mayo Clinic doctors, that have said there is a little bit of legitimacy here. The lemon does help. The honey does help. Uh, warm liquids. I know. People are like, yeah, whatever. Uh, warm liquids help with congestion. They help loosen things up. They help stimulate your saliva. Uh, they also said there is a uh, a mental uh, mentally desired effect, which is just a nice warm drink, which if you're stressed out around the holidays, that can help if you're sick. And the booze. And I'm so like, are the Mayo Clinic doctors all alcoholics too? Because <laughs> this all sounds like enabling speech. They, uh, they recommend a little nip three times a day. So how is it? Have you tried it yet? Uh, no, I smelled it. Oh, well, that's pretty good. Is it? Cheers. Happy holidays. Happy holidays, everybody. Ooh. You like that? That's nice. Does it need any more honey or anything? I'll, I'll, I'll make it right for I you. I think it's perfect. Okay, good. So, uh, well, that's our drink. That's a hot toddy. And the hot toddy... <laughs> what? <laughs> Only at Christmas. All right. And so every this... other show where there's a bottle of booze on the stage. This is all so delicious. I think we should retire by the fire, my friend. We are. We're going to take our hot toddies, and we're going to go over, and we're going to read. Well, we're going to talk first, and then we're going to read a story, okay? Okay. And seriously, this set. I'd love to have a set like this at, at our house. Can we get one of these, Yumi? A little fake fireplace. I feel like I should be walking like this during this song. <laughs> Tiptoeing. So, um, has anyone ever really paid attention to that famous uh, Andy Williams song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, usually sung by Johnny Mathis, where if you really pay attention to the lyrics, he says, there will be scary ghost stories and tales of the glory of Christmas is long, long ago. I have totally never noticed that until you brought me this a week ago. Has anyone else heard that and been like... What are they talking about? Like, this doesn't even make sense. It does make sense if you know a little bit about the history of Christmas. You, you are very close to your Don't Be Dumb set right now. <laughs> I am. Any Don't Be Dumb fans here? I need a plank right here. You tell them Josh sent you. <laughs> yes. There's that guy. <laughs> Thank you. I just broke the fifth wall. <laughs> mm -hmm. Think about it. I know. So the reason why that song says there will be scary ghost stories is that um, ghost stories were a part of, of um, Christmas for eons, for eons. Like, remember we were talking about, like, Frau Perkta and Belschnickel and all of them and how they were kind of um, co-opted from pagan lore. Um, that's where Christmas originally came from, was the winter solstice. And at the winter solstice... The, the, that's the longest night of the year, the shortest day of the year. And it was typically kind of celebrated by the pagans as the death of the sun. And then the next day, it was the resurrection of the sun. The sun came back and, and there was a promise of another year. But on this night, on the night of the winter solstice, which usually was around December 21st, 22nd, maybe the 25th, who mm -hmm. knows? 
um, the, the barrier, the veneer between the living and the dead was the thinnest. And so the dead could kind of come and go as they please and maybe finish up some unfinished business, that kind of stuff. Maybe, um, you know, watch with delight as Belschnickel scared the pants off of little kids. <laughs> Whatever you wanted to do, you could do it that night. Yeah, there was a, there's a British humorist named uh, Jerome. Sorry. <laughs> Jerome Fuzzy. Oh, no, wait. His name is Jerome. Jerome. Jerome K. Jerome. Yeah, I thought I was reading that wrong. His name is Jerome Jerome. Yeah. Good Lord, what is happening? So he sort of explained that around England, uh, he said this, whenever five or six English-speaking people meet round the fire on Christmas Eve, they start telling each other ghost stories. Nothing satisfies us on Christmas Eve but to hear each other tell authentic antidotes about specters. (laughs) I love you, Chuck. Jerome K. Jerome. That was wonderful. What a delightful chat. That was great. That's exactly how Jerome K. Jerome talked, by the way. Specters. There's a very... uh, there's a very rare grainy phonograph of him talking, and that's exactly what he sounded like. Chuck spent weeks preparing this. Apparently, Actually, it was lost. I saw on a bunch of photos, guys. and he was doing this in all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so it was well known in Victorian England that ghost stories were part of Christmas, and that actually explains another weird thing. If you step back and think about it, why there's a bunch of ghosts in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? Yeah, I never really thought about that because it didn't make sense. I mean, I think it makes sense just because you're born reading that story and seeing those movies. But when you look back, it doesn't make any sense that these ghosts are coming on Christmas Eve because here in America, we associate ghosts with Halloween. Exactly. But in jolly old England, the specters come out. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to keep at it until you guys give him a good laugh. So I just get it over with now. There were three or four good laughs in there. No, I'm with you. All right. (laughs) So um, in A Christmas Carol... Jacob Marley comes and is like, Scrooge, don't be like me. He's finishing up unfinished business because he can kind of cross over to the other side. So that's why ghosts pop up from time to time in Christmas stories. That's right. And Christmas songs. Isn't it delightful? Because it is a tradition to tell a ghost story around Christmas, which is why we are not doing that. We're going to tell a story about latkes at Hanukkah. That's right. Because we are non-traditional. Oh, look at that, everyone. Has anyone read this yet? Do you have any Jewish friends in the audience? All All right. right. This is for you, ma'am. So uh, this is a story called Meet the Latkes. Chuck and I just happen to have the hardbound edition in in different editions. Is it upside down? Thank you. (laughs) And we're going to read you the story of the Latka family, which hopefully you will love. We haven't even practiced this yet, so we'll see how it goes. Meet the Latkes by Alan Silverberg. All right, let's uh, go forward two slides. One more. All right, here we go. You want to start off or me? I'll start. All right, are you going to do voices and stuff? Uh, I don't know. Let's see how it goes. Okay. (laughs) Meet the Latka family. They're just like you and me, except they're potato pancakes. That's Lucy Latka and her dog, Applesauce, who, despite his name, seems to also be a Latka. (laughs) So Lucy says, Hello. And uh, Applesauce says, Woof. I gotta say, a a dog named Applesauce is pretty great. It's great. Yeah. But as you'll find, Applesauce is a a bit of a know-it-all. 
You know, you probably won't like applesauce by the end of this. All right. <laughs> Moving on. I'm going to read the top, and I'm going to make you read this word. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just happened to look it up, so I oh. will probably get it partially right. <laughs> Mama and Papa are busy in the kitchen making fried jelly donuts. Sufganiyot. Nice. How was that, ma'am? Good? Good to check out. All okay, right, all right. Up. Next slide. Lucy's older brother, Lex, who apparently was raised on the uh, Teddy Ruxpin grunge story. <laughs> Lex is reading comic books. <laughs> Get out of my room, he shouts. Lex is a teenager. He doesn't care about anything. I don't care. But Lex should care because, ellipse, tonight's the night, Lucy sings. He was just turned into Neil Diamond. <laughs> <laughs> it's the first night of Hanukkah. No, it's not. <laughs> oh, right. There's someone else in the Latka family. Yes. Grandpa. Hi there. Tonight's not Hanukkah, Grandpa says. It's Hanukkah. That's what I said, Lucy. Is confused. <laughs> As I believe Chuck said, we hadn't run through this yet. <laughs> Hanukkah. Can all I right. keep going? Let me take this one, too. Yeah, yeah, keep or going. Or did you really want this one? No, no, that's okay. all you. Grandpa grumbles. Say it with me. Ha, ha, ha. Hanukkah. <laughs> Look all at right. that latke. <laughs> so this is when applesauce comes along to clear things up. Right. This is about the time when you'll probably stop liking applesauce. Actually, both Hanukkah and Hanukkah are right. The holiday's name is Hebrew, everyone. So there are different ways to spell it and say it in English. I'm a dog named Applesauce. Mm -hmm. That was a good Applesauce. Thanks, Applesauce, says Lucy. <laughs> says Grandpa. <laughs> Oh, they're still getting ready for Hanukkah, everyone. Hanukkah! <laughs> the Latka family cooks and sings. Just Wang. wonderful. They're singing the dreidel song, everyone. Oh, dreidel, dreidel, dreidel. <laughs> you know the rest. Yes, very nice. Oh, we're singing. Don't worry. Yep. And they decorate the house. Look, they've even decorated... Applesauce. <laughs> Applesauce is like, actually, this is more bunting than decorations. <laughs> and he said, here, Applesauce, eat this. Except for Lex. He still doesn't care about anything. I still don't care. I could do Lex all day. I'm trying to decide who the villain here is. Is it Lex or Applesauce? It's uh, Applesauce. Is it? Oh, I love... You knew. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I've disliked applesauce since day one. But you're, you're kind of a Lex, though, at the end of the day, aren't you? Do you really think so? I don't know. I thought more of a Lucy. I thought you were kind of a grandpa. I was kind of happy go. Well, yeah, maybe. I identify with grandpa more, sure. Yeah, all right. <laughs> so after the menorah is lit and the dreidels are spun and the gelt gets gobbled, grandpa plops Lucy onto his lap. Do you want to hear about the miracle of Hanukkah, my little latke? And this is the best part, everyone. It tells the true story of Hanukkah. It's not just fun and games. <laughs> I do, Lucy says, biting into her last chocolate coin. That's the guilt. 
Did someone just correct my pronunciation of guilt? (laughs) (laughs) Grandpa begins with just a whisper. First, you need to know about the bees. Bees? Lucy asks. Grandpa nods. Hanukkah is a celebration of how the Jewish temple was saved from destruction. Mm. We celebrate this holiday thanks to the brave bees who buzzed and stung and fought to keep our people safe. I'm going to take the despicable applesauce. Okay. I'm pretty sure there aren't any bees in the history of Hanukkah or Hanukkah, says Grandpa. (laughs) Whose story is this? You're a dog named Applesauce. I threw that last part in. I don't know if you guys are following along. So Lucy's eyes widen. Were the bees big, Grandpa? Big. They were huge, giant. They were mega bees. And then Applesauce comes in. You mean Maccabees. Grandpa says, no, definitely Megabees. And the biggest, bravest of them all was Judah Megabee. That's Judah Maccabee. He was a mighty warrior and a heroic Jew who lived in Israel more than 2,000 years ago. And there were no bees. Woof, pee. (laughs) (laughs) But too late, Applesauce. Lucy can see it now. Judah and his swarming or his swarm of giant bees buzzing and stinging and fighting to save the Jewish temple and the lives of everyone who worshiped there. And who do you think Judah and his big bees were battling, Grandpa asks? That's easy. It was. Oh my goodness, everyone. <laughs> it's alien potatoes. What's the planet's name? Sure. Thank you. <laughs> Planet. <sighs> I just thought it was a coincidence. I don't understand why he said planet. (laughs) I'll explain it later. Okay. Zip, zap, wowie. It's getting too small for my old eyes, (laughs) said Grandpa. Grandpa continues, outer space spuds invaded Earth. Lasers shot from their eyes. And they had a lot of eyes. Everyone was doomed. Help! This is ridiculous, said Applesauce, because he's a cynic. Are you kidding me? (laughs) The enemy wasn't a bunch of alien potatoes. It was a terrible king named Antiochus. Mm-hmm. Well, it is true. Antiochus demanded that everyone believe in the same religion as he did, applesauce goes on. So for the Jews, that meant no more studying the Torah, no more celebrating Shabbat, and never again worshiping God. King Antiochus and his followers almost completely destroyed the Jewish temple. He was a tyrant. Yep. <laughs> Oh, look, he threw a menorah and hit applesauce in the head. And said, yup. Yes, a tyrant, agrees Grandpa. Judah and the Megabees were trapped by those evil tater tyrants from planet. (laughs) Prisoners in their own hive, they only had enough honey to last one day. Running out of honey? No, they were running out of oil. They needed oil to keep the temple's eternal flame blowing and burning. (laughs) And they weren't bees. Everybody is, applesauce is going to find his way to a hat box in the desert. (laughs) (laughs) I love dogs and I hate applesauce. The mega bees plotted and schemed, Grandpa says. And the next morning, when the sun rose on the temple, an enormous wooden dreidel stood in the village square. (laughs) (laughs) What could it be? The alien potatoes all wondered. And why does it buzz? Lucy waves her arms. I know. The mega bees were hiding inside the dreidel. Lucy was right. 
All right, everyone. Let's finish strong. <laughs> Smart Latka, says Grandpa. Plits, plats, plots. The mega bees burst from the dreidel and sliced and whipped and mashed those tater tyrants into taters. <laughs> Tattered tater tyrants? Lucy asks. Try saying that three times, Grandpa says. Tattered tater tyrants, tattered tater tyrants, tattered tater tyrants. All right, wow. You all get guilt. It's not bad, everybody. And then, miracle of miracles, Grandpa says, bringing it down a little bit. Judah Megabee stood in the middle of all those spoiled spuds. What a waste, he said. And so that great warrior added some egg and onion and a pinch of flour to make something good from the bad. Potato latkes. Us? Us. Oi. Oi. Applesauce. Do we have any applesauce fans? No, that's great. I love this crowd. Uh, Oh, okay. Got two people like applesauce. (laughs) Lucy's eyes and mouth are wide open. So the miracle of Hanukkah? Is that a long time ago, Mega Beast turned alien potatoes into latkes? Is that really true? Of course it's not true. <laughs> you, go, you keep it up with applesauce on that next one. The miracle of Hanukkah, or Hanukkah, is that not only did the small group of Maccabees protect their temple from King Antiochus' powerful army, but also, the tiny bit of oil left to light the holy menorah didn't last for just one day. The oil kept the eternal light bright for eight whole days. That's right. You can applaud that. That's fine. <laughs> Lucy points to her family's glowing menorah, eight candle holders, eight days of the Hanukkah miracle, and the... How do you pronounce that? Shamas. Okay. And the Shamas... The tallest candle to light all the others. You know what, says Grandpa. I like the dog's miracle better. Me too, says Mama, who we all forgot about. Me too, says Papa. (laughs) The same. I don't care, says Lex, stuffing his face with chocolate guilt. Lex, you left your room, cries Mama. It's another Hanukkah miracle. (laughs) And she gives him a hug. (laughs) Squeezing his his Beats by Dre clean off of his head. And that is Meet the Latkes by Alan Silberberg. Silberberg. Do you want to sing? I think we should sing. You You guys guys want to sing? sing Okay. Uh, We're going to sing a carol. We're going to lead you guys in singing a carol, and we're not joking. Okay. And this is, uh, this is how we're closing the show, everyone. So thank you for being here with us. We hope you guys have a wonderful Christmas time, a wonderful holiday time. Happy Hanukkah. And uh, here we go. Wow, what a performance, Chuck. <laughs> you did great, my friend. You did great as well. And I think this might be a new annual tradition, my friend. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. We did readings. We talked about monsters and miracles. We sang a carol together. There was an amazing set on stage. Yeah, man. It was great. It was a good time had by all. So uh, I guess Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Holidays, and um, may the tidings of the season greet you with gladness, no matter who you are or where you are.
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>